This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. For years, one of the primary ways that people experienced Donald Trump was through his tweets. All that changed on January 8th when, in the aftermath of the Capitol insurrection, Twitter banned at real Donald Trump. In their statement making the announcement, Twitter offered two tweets as evidence, which they said led to the ban, both which were published two days after the attacks at the Capitol. I'm going to read these tweets. The 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first, and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. Here's the second one. To all those who have asked, I am not going to the inauguration on January 20th. And this is what Twitter wrote. Due to the ongoing tensions in the United States and an uptick in the global conversation in regards to the people who violently stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, these two tweets must be read in the context of broader events in the country and the ways in which the president's statements can be mobilized by different audiences, including to incite violence, as well as in the context of the pattern of behavior from this account in recent weeks. After assessing the language in these tweets against our glorification of violence policy, we have determined that these tweets are in violation of the glorification of violence policy and the user, at real Donald Trump, should be immediately permanently suspended from the service. Twitter was not the only social media service to crack down on Trump. Snapchat banned him permanently, Facebook banned Trump's account through the remainder of his term, and suggested the ban could be, quote, indefinitely. Last week, YouTube suspended Trump for a week because they said he violated a violence policy. These measures have gone into place as tech companies have looked to crack down on Parler, a social media app where many of the rioters congregated. Apple banned the site from its app store, and Amazon cut it off from Amazon Web Services. This flurry of tech moves has raised questions about free speech and left some Christians wondering how well their First Amendment rights will be protected in the midst of this. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, I guess a number of these things merit their own gut check, but collectively... How are you feeling about all the stuff that's happened, gone down in the past couple weeks? I was very reluctant to get into this topic today because in one sense, I found the discussion about free speech in the days after the Capitol insurrection, they were they were aggravating. I mean, it just seemed like so much uh, attempts to change the subject, to avoid responsibility. Clearly, some topping, some talking points had got sent out among conservatives and and Republicans to really push a a free speech discussion. I just found a lot of it dishonest. But at the same time, it seemed like in a deliberate effort to change the subject, places it should be were a continuing discussion on the dangers of the alt-right, the dangers of Christian nationalism, the fact that the Capitol was being attacked by uh, Donald Trump supporters. 
uh, the fact there was an attempt to you know derail the democratic process in America. And it just seems like a lot of it was pointing over by, but look, Twitter banned Trump. Isn't that so awful? But at the same time, I did see a lot of discussion about reasons why it was good for Trump to get booted off some of these places, or even discussion of like, oh, you know, can we can we charge Trump with, you know, incitement? It was interesting looking at a number of the statements that people were pointing to as direct, you know, incitements to violence. And this happened on the, on the Christian side too, when people uh, were pointing to, you know, look at all these kind of Christian leaders, or I guess just, you know, to some degree, Republican leaders who kind of, you know, incited this riot. I'm like, well, did they? Like, you know, I mean, incitement's one of those areas that we've carved out as like, you know, not being, you know, protected speech. It get uncomfortable with some of the quotes that I saw running around as people saying like, oh, look, this clearly was a call to go attack the Capitol. And I thought this was clearly a, an effort to get people riled up, but is riling people up and telling them to go break uh, break down the windows and doors of the Capitol and violently attack and possibly kill uh, members of Congress. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a big gap there. So I was anxious about that. I'm also a little bit of, you know, concerned about, you know, large corporations uh, and their, uh, and the way in which, the Village Green and the place where we talk together has become an increasingly privatized space, but we'll get into that in the podcast. What, were, what was your uh, gut check, uh, Morgan? <laughs> like you, many. <laughs> there were many gut checks. Yeah, I think I have really enjoyed all the different viewpoints that people have come at it with this. And enjoy meaning there's a lot going on in these discussions about how social media platforms should treat users who <laughs> act in bad faith and really, in my opinion, destroy the experience for a lot of people, right? I mean, I feel like this comes up all the time with harassment and the type of ways that you can be malicious to people online. And then there's a whole nother level that happens when there's speech that's destructive and it's coming from someone who has real authority and real clout and real power to do that. I've been very interested, I guess, in how different social media platforms are making those types of distinctions. I know that Twitter had recently carved out some, I would say, maybe looser rules for people who are world leaders, which is something I hope we get into on this. I've actually felt sometimes at a loss for how to think through all of these things because I've seen good arguments on both sides. I don't know how much you were looking into the whole decision by Twitter to ban Trump, but that was something that was really agonized over by the CEO, Jack Dorsey. And I really appreciated just how thoughtful, I guess, he he was and how he was trying to handle this and also work with his staff on this. He was actually, I guess, out of the country when all of this happened and how this went down. So I was intrigued about how that decision, because I don't think that was his first option to go with that. Yeah, it hasn't always been made clear to me, you know, when people are talking about First Amendment you were talking about like the quote unquote village green. I don't know how that has always been defined and necessarily what makes it different now. You're mentioning the role of companies. You know, I guess when I think of village green spaces, one of those places I also think of is newspapers, but newspapers also seem like companies to me traditionally where people have shared speech and obviously newspapers have a lot of control over what gets published in their pages or not. So anyway, long story short, I don't have exactly strong feelings, more just a lot of curiousness about how to think through all of these things in a smart way, because I feel very much out of my, yeah, out of my legal league here. 
All right, Ted, who is our guest? All right. Our guest today is John Inazu, who should be a familiar name both to Christianity Today readers and to Quick to Listen listeners. He is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion and holds a joint appointment at Washington University Law School and the John Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. He is the author of Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference, which CT has covered a few times. And more recently, uh, with Tim Keller, he wrote Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. John, thank you so much for coming back on Quick to Listen. It's great to be with both of you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, as I was telling Morgan I and, and you earlier, I'm, I'm thrilled to have someone who can talk about both the faith aspects on free speech and also the issues of confident pluralism and also someone who who knows free speech law who you know a first amendment guy let's start there because i do i do want to talk a little bit about an important difference that really gets muddy in kind of the popular discussion of some of these things and that's i think the difference between a discussion of free speech and a discussion of the first amendment so yeah, we have the First Amendment to the Constitution that places things very much, you know, as 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 what Congress is allowed to do. And then there's this Universal Declaration of Human Human Rights from the UN that talks about everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. So you don't quite have the words freedom of speech there, but how you see the difference between kind of broad discussions of freedom of speech, the specificities of kind of the U.S. First Amendment protection on freedom of speech. At a basic level, we can maybe make a distinction between norms and laws, the norms, what, what should our cultural views about speech and expression be, and they're going to be contextualized based on you know what country we're in and that sort of thing. So in the United States, we're going to have certain free speech norms that will be different than, say, in Germany or other places of the world. As far as the law, though, the law is going to be more particularized and more constrained in terms of what it can do. So, you know, one thing I would encourage as an exercise, people listening to this, just pull up the text of the First Amendment. I mean, just Google it and read the words and, and you see, maybe you'll be surprised at what it actually says. It's not necessarily what you might remember. The first few words start, Congress shall make no law. Ted, as you mentioned the word Congress, that, that really does two important Things One, it means that as an initial matter, the First Amendment applied only to the federal government, not to state and local governments. Now, that's changed for some complicated but important reasons. And so now the First Amendment binds not just Congress, not just the federal government, but also the local police department and, you know, the local town hall and city officials. And that's important. So it, it carries through all levels of government, but it applies only to government, not to private actors. This is what's called the state action doctrine, and it's always been the case with some very rare exceptions that the First Amendment is not going to restrict private entities from their own restrictions on free on speech and expression. So notice, I mean, another thing to observe about the First Amendment itself is it is a restriction on what people can do, people being government entities. Government entities may not restrict speech but it does not say anything about private actors. Uh, and that's a, an important and much muddled distinction these days. I want to get into some of the particulars of what, what's been carved out as exceptions to that. But I was struck by the this kind of UN Declaration of Human Rights, where it does say this idea, the freedom to hold opinions without interference in a kind of a UN context and kind of a global and kind of just when we're talking about free speech advocates. Is there an idea that 
this kind of a holding opinions without interference should be something that applies to private actors more private private companies and and places like Twitter or you know maybe the masterpiece cake shop folks whether that conversation about free speech is is changing beyond governmental lines to be honest i've always found the un sort of aspirational language a, a bit squishy i mean sometimes helpful but not very practical speech and expression and opinions without interference what in the world does that mean if, if you're a seventh grader and you say something and your classmates stigmatize you you're not speaking without interference right so i mean there's no we can think of countless examples where speech is constrained for all kinds of reasons, whether it's peer pressure or social forces or private companies or government. And especially because we all experience speech, expression, and dialogue subjectively. So once something that I say might bother you, but not Morgan and vice versa, there's no good way to establish a standard that is that broadly aspirational. So I think we have to be more, much more modest in what we can actually restrict when it comes to speech. Well, let's talk about Josh Hawley for a second. So for folks who haven't been following as closely, the senator who's from Missouri is one of the leaders in spreading misinformation about the presidential election. And I think there are some who have blamed Hawley for the riots. There's this picture that's been circulating where he raised his fists as he passed a crowd of protesters shortly before the actual, yeah, shortly before these protesters actually entered the Capitol. So in the aftermath of all of this, Simon and Schuster actually dropped his upcoming book deal. And then Hawley responded to their decision after this, and he said that decision was, quote, a direct assault on the First Amendment. He also called it Orwellian. You know, Hawley describes himself as a constitutional lawyer on his Twitter bio. John, to what extent does losing a book deal have something to do with the First Amendment? Does he have a point there, or is he just kind of, you know, overinflating this grievance? Yeah, not not much of a point there. I saw a sort of a cheeky note on Twitter where someone said it's it's also not Orwellian because Orwell Orwell ended up getting published. <laughs> but I, I think more seriously, Josh's misuse of the First Amendment is quite deliberate, and it follows some efforts he's made in the past to blur the lines toward private companies, especially those social media actors, the powerful uh, social media corporations, and. If, if anywhere there's a normative point to be made in favor of his position, I think it's with these social media companies. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later in this podcast. So he's not without a point to be made. But as a descriptive matter, this has nothing to do with the First Amendment. And more importantly, he knows it has nothing to do with the First Amendment. He's a smart guy. He clerked for Michael McConnell, one of the leading free speech experts in the country, he worked at the Beckett Fund for a while on some First Amendment cases. So he knows the First Amendment. And so to, to go on social media and tell his constituents that a private book publisher canceling his book contract is a violation of the First Amendment is just is absolutely wrong. And he knows it's wrong. And that, that to me, is disturbing, both as a subject matter expert, but also as a fellow Christian. I mean, well, that's, that's, that's really not letting our yes be yes and our no be no. Agreed. I do want to talk about what we have carved out for the uh, First Amendment. I mentioned incitement. Can you tell us a little bit about like 
Is incitement the same thing as the you know proverbial yelling fire in a crowded theater? Are these kind of different things we say th- this is not covered by free speech? What what kind of are the broad strokes that we say this is speech that is not protected by the First Amendment? Right. Yeah. I mean, so it's super complicated. So first of all, lots of speech is functionally not protected by the First Amendment. So even though the text of the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. Congress and other government entities make lots of laws that directly restrict speech. You cannot form a criminal conspiracy through words. You cannot perjure yourself on the witness stand. You cannot say words that engage in insider trading. So there are lots of, you know, actual words spoken that are completely restricted by law and nobody really bats an eye at that stuff. Those are not the hard cases, but they are to say, or they do illustrate that there are lots of laws that restrict speech. Absolutely. Now, the harder and more contested questions are the line drawing examples and areas. And you mentioned incitement, which has been in the news lately. So the incitement standard traces back to a 1969 decision, Brandenburg against Ohio, where the Supreme Court said the First Amendment will not extend to imminent incitement to lawbreaking. So two things that are important about that standard. One, it's not just violence, it's lawbreaking. So technically, Brandenburg encompasses imminent incitement to nonviolent lawbreaking. If I say, let's go trespass now, even if no one's going to get hurt, that's not protected free speech because of the lawbreaking standard. But the imminence and standard piece of it is also really important. So if I incite someone to future lawbreaking, that is not under the Brandenburg standard unprotected speech. I can still have a First Amendment right to incite to future lawbreaking. And so imminence becomes really important. And as we think back to the Capitol riots, it's very unclear to me whether whether any of the public figures we've seen are are legally culpable under the standard of imminent incitement. I mean, I think the closest we get is Rudy Giuliani talking about trial by combat. But even that, I don't think, is going to reach the Brandenburg standard. And certainly, the president said what Josh Hawley said, what others said, that, that strikes me as nowhere near imminent incitement to lawbreaking. Now, Morally and politically, should they be culpable for their words? I mean, I think absolutely. And I think there are serious consequences to what they said, but I don't see them as legal consequences and they don't violate the imminent standard. And one reason this is really important is the blurring of this imminent standard is what has squelched all kinds of other protest and dissent movements throughout history, including as recently as this summer when, when we saw the responses to the murder of George Floyd. And the, the more you back up the imminent standard to say, we want to hold legally culpable or we want to restrict people at any level of encouraging a protest or a movement, a dissenting movement, when, as sometimes they do, those protests become violent. If you're going to hold the precursors to those actions legally culpable, then you're going to squelch and inhibit quite a bit of important speech. So it's not to defend the actual enactors of violence, but it is to say we should be very careful about extending that imminent standard. I do want to spend a decent amount of this conversation talking about social media. So let's start with something that we got into in our gut check, which was talking about the ways that social media, digital media, is similar to newspapers of yesteryear and in ways that it is definitely its own beast when it comes to freedom of speech issues. This is such an important set of questions. And, you know, as you and Ted were talking in the opening, I was sort of nodding my head in agreement that on the one hand, 
we've got a lot going on right now. And, and the Capitol insurrection was just singularly such a horrific threat to our basic democratic practices that it deserves a lot of attention on its own. And yet, on the other hand, these issues foregrounded and foreshadowed by what we've seen with social media are also very, very important. So I think it's worth paying some attention to them. And to me, when we think back to not only newspapers, but also the other big cases of the 80s and 90s involved cable news and broadcast stations, technologies that almost nobody knows about anymore, where they're similar is in the sometimes near monopolistic capture of news information, or at least the conveyance of news and ideas. And where they're different and vastly different is in the, the technological and sociological means of transmission. So let's, let me start with the monopoly point. I mean, the, the cases that garnered the most attention and scrutiny in the 80s and 90s were you know, cases where you had the local news, the Miami Herald that dominated Miami's market. And the question came up, you know, if you have something printed in that paper that really takes on an issue or, or, or a person, do, do, does, does someone have a right to reply in that paper because it was such an important paper in that market at the time? Or with broadcast news cases, is there a kind of a, an equal time requirement for certain political ideas? If you're going to give time to one side, that you have to give it to the other side. And so you can see similar kinds of issues on social media when some of these corporations and companies dominate so much of the landscape. But I, I think it's just the scale here is so much more magnified. You can't really imagine starting... Uh, even though people have tried, I guess, you, you can't really imagine starting Twitter 2.0 or Facebook 2.0 and pretend like that's going to capture a sufficient part of the market. But then the other thing that I think it's really important to think about is how we communicate on these new platforms. So it used to be you would read the news or hear the news report on TV, and it was kind of a one-way communication of information. I mean, maybe you call into the show or write a letter to the editor, but that at least has a lag time and definitely is pretty limited. Now, everyone's sharing everything. Everyone's commenting on everything else. And we have functionally become our own news in, in most senses, right? We become part of the story, at least to the people we're in communication with, who listen to us, and we insert ourselves in our opinions. And it's it's kind of weird because there's been this collapse of the line between news authority and news recipient, and especially on the opinion side of things. And then related to kind of the earlier right of reply cases, it's no longer the case that even granting space for a reply is going to make any difference. So when you've got the viral tweets, and let's say it's incendiary or you know biased in some outsized way, it's not like getting to hit the reply button is going to ensure that the same audience sees your response. It just doesn't happen. We know this, you know, when tweets, when bad tweets go viral, the corrections are like a fraction of what the initial audience sees. So we've got, we've got fundamental problems baked into the way we communicate online, none of which the law is going to solve. All these different social media platforms, with an exception that we'll get into in a second, do have some sort of community policies that they, you know, do varying degrees of <laughs> well at enforcing. Have you noticed that many of these policies seem to mirror 
our own constitution and how that's been enforced, or I guess the First Amendment is how it's been enforced, or or do these seem really like fundamentally different approaches to speech? Some cases they're trying to come close to the First Amendment, and and you know by the way they're not new in doing this. So think about for example any private university right for decades has had because private universities are not subject to the First Amendment they've had to figure out what is our own internal speech code going to look like or any private high school same thing so lots of entities have been struggling with this question for a long time some of them come close to looking like the first amendment others will say have different kinds of policies but one thing i've noticed and i've done a lot of advising for colleges and private schools about their speech codes and policies whatever policy you come up with is going to say something very loud about what your values are <laughs> so what you choose to restrict when it's your choice and what you choose to permit whether you make that explicit or not in terms of it's linked to your values it is going to reflect your values it's going to reflect what you actually think is harmful what you actually think is not harmful what you think is on balance better or worse in, in communication and one of the reasons we in this country have tended to have something close to an absolutist First Amendment when it comes to viewpoint or ideology is we've learned the hard way through the law that it, it's very difficult to, to walk back a broad-based, all viewpoints allowed kind of approach. Because once you start ruling certain people or certain ideas out of bounds, it's, it becomes very hard to draw a principled line. And I think both private schools and universities and also these social media companies are are realizing the difficulty of that challenge. Could you talk a little bit about Section 230, which is something that has come up a number of times in these conversations and that I think President Trump even made in some ways a a rallying cry in some circles. What what does Section 230 do? Why do some folks want it repealed? Sure. So, I mean, Section 230 refers to a provision within the Communications Decency Act. And what it does is shield certain companies from potential liability to third-party postings of content. So if you're an interactive computer service, meaning you're, you're basically just a platform and people post their own videos and, and words on your platform, then you cannot be held liable under Section 230 for the contents of those posts or those videos if they end up being defamatory or otherwise illegal, uh, uh, then you're not liable as the content service. Now, if you happen to be not just the content service, but become what's called an information content provider under the statute, then you could be liable if you're actually producing some of the stuff there. And there have been a bunch of cases that have tried to identify the line between a service and a content provider. The, The reason that people are looking into or pushing against that that law is that the the liability shield it provides to the computer services means that they can grow and you know their revenue streams are going to be greater because they don't have to worry about that liability cost and it's going to encourage kind of this let a thousand flowers bloom and anyone can post anything in, even though individuals will still be or could still be liable for you know posting something for example that's defamatory their pockets and their potential reliability are just going to be much smaller than these big companies. So it's another example where the statutory structure is is empowering these companies for both growth and also immunity, which is one of the reasons that people are targeting that provision and asking for reform. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't... I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I want to get back to the, uh, the Twitter rules conversation in a second, but since you, you brought up you know, private schools as a, as a particular example, I'm curious about your views on the Christian response to some of these challenges to free speech. There's a lot of ways in which freedom of speech and freedom of association are very much intertwined creating these uh, communities that stand for those values. That's been one of the great, you know, histories of, uh, you know, kind of Christians in, in America where we've, we've had these kind of Christian colleges that have, that have helped people think Christianly about things. And even back going to, you know, some of the original, you know, large universities had these kind of Christian values associated with them. But also there's a dark side to that history because back in the day when you had these segregationist day schools, they call them, or church schools, or, or whatever, these schools that were founded as desegregation was happening as a way to kind of avoid desegregation and a way to kind of continue to enshrine segregation as a core value, even though it wasn't out front. It wasn't like, hey, we are you know deliberately an all-white school. It was like, oh, we're a Christian school. And this is something that rallied a number of evangelical and, and you know Christian organizations that they said, well, you know, they didn't want to go out there and so we support segregation, but when there was a challenge under the Jimmy Carter administration to look at the tax exemption or some of the rules regarding some of these segregated private schools, a lot of Christians came out of their apolitical approach and, and started defending those things. And it's, that's left a, a kind of a terrible legacy. It kind of really broke apart relations between, I mean, there were already bad relations between white evangelicals and evangelicals of color, there is this kind of legacy that one of the things that, one of the things at least that helped wake Christians up and get them highly politically engaged was kind of defending segregated schools. And so I'm kind of wondering, what have we learned from that about Christians speaking up for speech, for controversial speech? You have places like the ACLU that kind of famously 
you supported the, you know, kind of uh, Nazis marching in Skokie or these kinds of things. But th- these were, you know, civil liberties organizations that are saying, yes, we, we find it important to defend speech that we abhor because we're a civil liberties organization. But when you are a Christian organization, if you're a, uh, you know, a, a pastor, if you're a kind of Christian, even a Christian legal organization, standing up for controversial speech that is not directly related to <laughs> the gospel, You've written the book on confident pluralism. How important is it for us to stand up or support those that we think, ooh, this is a this is a bad perspective, but we should defend their right to, to have it? So maybe two broad comments to start off. One is principles like the First Amendment only work if they're for everybody. <laughs> you know, we've got lots of great poll quotes from Supreme Court cases about, you know, pr- protecting the speech I hate in order to defend the speech that I love and things like that. And it only works when it's for everybody. And if you only argue for civil liberties and free speech, when it's your own interests, it looks like, and it, it is special pleading and it doesn't really support the overall constitutional system that we have. The other point is that civil liberties and constitutional rights are, are always going to be claimed by those who aren't in power. If you're in power, you're not going to need these rights because you make the laws. And if you, even if you make a general law that affects you, you write an exemption for yourself into the law. That's how legislative bodies work. And it's, so it's why you don't really need civil liberties at the moment as much when you're in power. But it's for the people who lack that political and legislative power who need these background protections. And, and they're really important. And so uh, Christians, when they find themselves in non-majoritarian positions should be advocating for civil liberties, but when they find themselves in majoritarian positions, they should also be advocating for constraints on their own thinking and robust protections for others. And I mean, you mentioned certainly Jim Crow and segregation as, as, a, as an extremely important example here, but there are others too, you know, should evolution be taught in public schools or what about sex ed curricula and those sorts of things. And, and many Christians have just been utterly inconsistent here, right? When they, when they are in political minorities, they advocate strongly for their own rights. And when they dominate the local school system or the school board or the local municipality, they say, no, it's our way only. We're not going to allow these other viewpoints in. And that's just flat out inconsistent. There are better examples. And, and I think in some ways, especially in a kind of our polarized uh, environment, we should be talking more about these examples. Uh, So one comes from the 1990s when Congress enacted legislation called the Equal Access Act. And basically what that did was to say, if you're a public school and you open up your classroom space after school to different community groups, you know, whoever, the local knitting club or whoever wants to come in, you've got to open it up to all groups. You can't just say the groups we like. And after that legislation passes in the 90s, there are two groups around the country that benefit from it principally, the Christian groups and the gay rights groups, very progressive school districts that didn't want the Christians in, the Christian groups relied on that law, and in very conservative districts that didn't want the gay rights groups in, the the gay rights groups relied on that law. That's exactly how it should work. It's going to work differently in different regions depending on the political realities on the ground. We just need more of that. We need to be talking about more of that instead of this kind of What's good for me is is good for me, and I, but I'm not going to extend those same privileges to you. 
we ran a piece, this takes us a little bit out of the U.S. context, but we just ran a piece recently about Christians in France who were arguing on behalf of, of Muslims against the uh, Charlie Hebdo images. This has been an area that France has very different, <laughs> very different rules in terms of religion, in terms of speech, and, and those kinds of things. But I have noticed that Christians globally, when they say, you know, we need to be advocating on behalf of others, that same kind of argument that you just made of when Christians are in power, they need to be, you know, arguing on behalf of the oppressed. And when they are in the minority, they need to be arguing on behalf of the oppressed. That in France seems to be, the argument seems to be, look, these images are something that um, are hurting the Muslims in this country. They are deeply offensive. They are terrible. We are not arguing this on our on our own behalf. We don't find anything wrong with these images of Muhammad ourselves. But for the sake of others, we think that the rules on free speech and on free press should probably be be pulled back. If one of the senses is, you know, arguing on behalf of the rights and I guess image of God gets overused sometimes in these kind of conversations, but I suppose arguing on behalf of, of your neighbor, trying to love your neighbor. Out of out of the specific context of, well, the First Amendment says this and French law says this, how do we settle in our own minds whether loving our neighbor should mean advocating for more restrictions on freedom? And when do we think that loving our neighbor should mean advocating for fewer restrictions on freedom? Yeah, that's quite a question. I mean, it's a good question. I think it gets into some really deep theological and theoretical issues that I'm not I'm not sure I've got sorted out, answered that coherently right now. But I will say this, um, and it just sticking to the speech context, whatever the law is, Christians know how we're supposed to engage in our in our speech. I mean, we're supposed to speak truthfully, but also lovingly and and with compassion and kindness. And a lot of the discourse I see, and I'm not talking about the flamethrowers that we all make fun of, but I just mean like people you and I know on social media, a lot of that speech is not kind and seasoned with salt and above reproach and all the things that we know. And it's not going out of its way to treat others as image bearers. And so law and culture, I think, are certainly both encouraging more outlandish and offensive forms of speech. But as Christians, we should just be marching to the beat of a different drum here. And it's, it's astounding to me how much we as a group of people have capitulated to these very standards. And I, I mean, maybe we just all need to get off of social media. I don't know, but a lot of this is really discouraging and it doesn't have to, no one, no one is telling us we have to be mean. <laughs> We're just choosing to do so. John, if we go back to social media for a second, and just because again, I, I hear the first amendment brought up, all the time. And one of the points that I saw people making in the aftermath of Twitter's decision when people were saying that Twitter's decision to ban Trump violated the First Amendment, others were responding to that and saying, no, in fact, Twitter deciding to ban him is showing that the government is actually not restricting any speech in this instance because Twitter is acting on its own. What abilities right now? What type of regulation does the government have with regards to social media right now? And is this something that you expect is going to change? The descriptive answer right now, not much. They can't do much to these private companies. Will it change? 
I don't know. I mean, there's going to be a lot of attention paid to it. And I, you know, I want to emphasize here, I am deeply concerned about the power of these social media companies. I'm not at all sure it was the right decision to take off Trump's accounts. I can see why they did it. And, you know, and as a personal matter, I was relieved not to have to read his nonsense anymore. But, but was it the right move? Does it set a good precedent? I don't know. I mean, Simon and Schuster can pull Josh Hawley's book contract and it's just a contract dispute and there's no First Amendment issue there. But is that normatively the right idea here? Should book publishers be yanking contracts because they don't like what people have done? Those set really difficult precedents and lines and trajectories. And part of the problem here is you have a subjective experience of what counts as harm or bad being made by private actors who at least presently aren't really accountable to anyone then just defaults to whatever your own worldview or echo chamber is that's what happens to be catching the people in the boardroom or the operations room at facebook or twitter that's going to affect how communication happens in this country and that seems worrisome to me so you know just to give you one you know controversial example that will illustrate the point i i believe i read and i i I don't know actually the veracity of these claims but you could imagine, let's just say, that someone writing a critique of transgender rights, for example, a, a book of that uh, would, would have that book flagged or perhaps deplatformed from Amazon selling books. And the argument would be the words and arguments set out in this book are by themselves deeply harmful to transgender people, which maybe, you know, that might be true. But lots of things are harmful to lots of people, right? Lots of books out there cause subjective harm to lots of people. And if you give power to private actors like Amazon to say, these are the things we find harmful that we're not going to carry, we're not going to publish, and these are the things that we don't find harmful, you're just giving a lot of power to those decision makers. I agree with you that it it, it is giving a lot of power. I guess my I have a kind of a, a couple of follow-up questions. One is that, is it not also reasonable to argue that, you know, allowing particular loud incendiary voices can also interfere with other people's speech on a given platform? And then my other question, too, is just that, you know, there's, I understand the concern that is there about folks that work for these social media companies kind of making it up as they go along. I guess my question is, is the better approach then to take something that is much more laissez-faire or is this something that you would actually advocate trusting the government more on this one? And why would that be? I honestly don't know here. I mean, there is, so I guess a couple of things on how we're describing some of these online communications. I found a lot of president Trump's tweets to be deeply offensive and awful and in poor taste and we could add all kinds of adjectives it's not clear to me that anything he did was squelching other people's speech rights or even you know cognitive ability to make speech arguments there are lots of online communications that come much closer to that so the personal attacks you know individualized attacks over and over again particularly against women particularly against non-white people on, on uh, you know, this over and over again, racial slurs or sexual slurs or demeaning comments or threats or sexual threats, those kinds of things can effectively derail speech. And I think the social media companies try to regulate and minimize some of those things. And so conceptually, some of our online communication can really chill speech. But I, I just, I think it's, it worries me a bit when we jump to 
expand that category basically to all speech we don't like or we find offensive, which which some people are doing right now. So I, I don't know how to constrain that. Would, would the government do any better of a job? I don't know. I mean, you would at least have more transparency and possibly accountability, and those things matter to me. So, you know, you could have a governmental oversight board that is politically accountable that has to explain its decision making and its processes. I know some of the social media companies are trying to do this kind of thing. And, you know, I applaud the efforts to move toward independent oversight boards and that sort of thing. I just haven't seen how they function yet. You know, we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. These are these are really hard issues. But I think in the mix, what concerns me the most is just, well, two things really. One, how much power has been consolidated into these few companies, I mean, that are just basically effectively controlling the marketplace of ideas today. Not not necessarily what gets said yet, but how things are communicated. And the other concern, which maybe worries me even more, is all of this is just reflecting who we already are, right? I mean, so the problem at the end of the day is us. We're the ones who are putting out this trash and retweeting it and paying attention to it and letting it shape our hearts and minds and souls. And this includes Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, And we're becoming who we already see reflected on social media. And that's pretty unsettling, but I don't know what to do with that short of drastic Andy Crouch-like measures that say, get rid of all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that may be the answer. For me, I'm wondering, you know, I'm seeing the old line was, the solution to uh, bad speech is, is is more speech rather than kind of regulating speech. And I'm seeing just a lot of weaponizing that both on the small end and the big end. So on the small end, you have the rise of bots, right? There are, it's crazy to me to see on Twitter, especially, but, but not only on Twitter, the rise of, I guess, shout down bots that are programs of the one you saw this when someone would criticize Trump, you know, all these kind of bots would come out of the woodwork and just hound that person, depending on, you know, kind of how much of a target they had put on themselves. But, you know, you had these Russian bot farms or whatever that, that would just hound people and fill their, fill their accounts with mentions and very difficult as an individual to kind of take on a, a bot army. And it did have the effect of kind of squelching speech. I know a number of people who were kind of run off of uh, run off of these platforms by kind of a mixture of kind of angry Twitter mobs, and, but also largely bots, largely bots. On the other side, you have the, the idea that like, well, let's join together and speak in, in kind of a, a larger voice. And that's led to kind of a, a corporatized speech. And, and I'm not super comfortable with saying that the answer to problems with speech on kind of an individual level is to kind of corporatize everything and to move towards this kind of like, you know, large, you know, this is, this is where we had controversial Supreme court decisions about, you know, the nature of, of corporate speech and and corporations having the same speech rights as individuals and a company being able to supposedly speak on behalf of all of its workers and millions or billions of dollars into the political process. These are, these are both troubling to me. And they both seem to get away from the idea of what speech is kind of made to protect, which is like you and me talking and me trying to convince you of an idea. Both of them seem a little bit more to be about drowning out the other person 
and it just seems to they both seem to encourage bad actors in some in some way. Do you see a crumbling of this idea of of the solution to bad speech is more speech, or do you think that there's something else going on? Do you see a, a better solution to to the rise of of shout down cultures, both on the large corporate side and the technological bot side? You know, in, in terms of more speech remedying bad speech, I'm not sure the maxim was ever quite true. I mean, so it works. It works in some select settings. It works in, in the classroom. You know, when, when I'm teaching, I think bad arguments can be helped by more speech. It works in you know a dialogue like the one we're having, where we can go back and forth and sharpen ideas. But it presumes a dialogue, and it presumes sort of good faith actors on both sides of the dialogue. And most, I mean, the vast majority of speech and expression is not that. So in the vast majority of cases, I don't think that more speech is going to remedy bad speech. But let me just double down on your pessimism for a minute and and suggest a, a further confounding factor is that we have so much speech now that we're crowding out even the possibility of listening to the good speech. And so, for example, and this is tied also to the collapse of institutions and a, and a you know lessening respect or understanding of expertise. But now you, you can go online or even you can go to your peer group and you don't even know who to trust or what to believe. And this is getting to some, I, I did a lot of talking with folks around COVID and churches and that sort of thing. And the number, you know, people coming to me saying, well, I'm talking to this group of pastors and on the one hand they're hearing you should wear masks and on the other hand they're hearing don't wear masks i mean when you get to the that basic level of divides about reality it, it, how do you counter bad speech with corrective speech especially when in some christian circles very dangerously attempts to impugn experts and to say that expertise doesn't matter. So it becomes more a question of celebrity and, you know, you trust the person who is kind of witty on Twitter. Uh, that's, that's a really bad recipe for trying to figure out through speech, how to resolve hard issues, how to persuade one another. And that seems to be the direction that we're headed. And so I think, you know, as, as kind of a practical point here, I think Christians need to, figure out how to cut through the noise, how to decrease their inputs and how to focus more on a select few trusted inputs. I just think we need to be doing more about buttressing local authority and actual relationships rather than relying on celebrity authority. What is the local church doing and saying and representing? And do you trust the leaders of those churches? And if not, why? And how, and if not, if they're not trustworthy, how do we get different people in there? But we shouldn't be having, you know, very basic epistemic levels of what is truth and what is reality. We, we shouldn't be part of this, this craziness. But isn't that the promise of social media? Like, isn't that kind of the, isn't that what Facebook and Twitter kind of suggested? Like, Hey, you don't have to follow everybody. Just choose your, choose your friends, choose the, choose the local people that you trust. And you can have a conversation with them on our platform. You don't have to, you don't have to deal with all the noise. We're just going to give you a news feed just of the people that you that you know and trust. And then that has created some of the problem of people buying into conspiracy theories because their friend that they trust <laughs> shared them this YouTube link, which led them to another YouTube link. And yeah, part of it is, like you said, the Christian distrust of, of, of authority. But how does the localized thing that you're talking about? differ from 
the promise of social media? The promise on social media does not account for either human fallibility or Christian virtue. So that, you know, one, one mix would be recognizing both limits and possibilities. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think by any means this will be easy because too many Christians are already caught up in this, but, but it could start by, I mean, there's a way in which, I mean, you know, I, I write a lot on pluralism and big tent ideas and all of that. And so of course I believe in that stuff, but there's a way in which too much pluralism can just capitulate into relativism. If we're only, if as Christians, we're just trying to always get all viewpoints and all ideas on the table, then we're actually doing nothing. I mean, so, you know, just to be kind of blunt about this, when it, when it comes to how churches should be responding to the ongoing pandemic, I don't think we need to pay any attention to people who are saying things like you shouldn't wear masks or it's all a big lie or something. I mean, that's just not true. And it's deeply harmful for Christians and Christian organizations and churches to be giving any attention or any platform to that kind of view in the name of unity or in the name of exploring ideas or that kind of thing. We, we should just stop all that. But then how do you manifest that to a practical local level? Well, I think we've got a lot of ground to make up here because I think a lot of people are scratching their heads and like you said, they don't know who to trust right now. I don't know. Maybe does, does institutional collaboration start to help? I mean, sometimes, sometimes the ability to strengthen reputation and strengthen credibility can happen when groups of people and institutions come together and say, you got to start trusting this group. But I think that also means, and here I'm kind of frustrated with especially evangelicals for sometimes their unwillingness to just cut ties with friends and neighbors who've just gone a bit nonsensical. They're, they're pretty quick to do it when it's on to the left, right? When, when someone has gets too progressive of a tendency, then they, you know, you're out of the conference circuit or we're not going to endorse your books anymore. But when you look to the right, whether it's conspiracy theories about the pandemic or support for Trump's nationalism, there's, there's a deep reticence to say, we're going to cut ties with our friends here. But I think we just need to see more of that happen. Well, you're singing my song on that. You mentioned harm and authority as the thing that we need to kind of, you know, on, on the COVID strike me as things that I hear in other contexts, especially sexual ethics, that make me deeply uncomfortable. And I'm wondering if they should make me uncomfortable or if there's something else going on. If those, if harm and authority are as helpful concepts when we're talking about community building, who to exclude, who our institutions should in- include and exclude. I think the set, of, the set of questions you're raising is super important. And let me think about two different approaches here. One is we can distinguish between subjective harms and at least less subjective, if not objective harms. Words spoken are, are almost always subjective harms. The word that I say that offends or damages you might not offend or damage Morgan. That's just the way we work as human beings. And it's very difficult to constitutionalize or, or even think about how to approach subjective harms under the law. The, the question of whether more people are going to get COVID if you don't wear masks is represents more of an objective harm, right? It doesn't matter what you say or how you experience that. You're just going to get the virus more likely without masks. And, and so I think that we can make that kind of threshold distinction. Let's focus on, uh, you know, especially in the First Amendment context, the subjective harms, which are where all the action seems to be. Here, I think, especially as Christians, it's okay to be wary of 
restricting words that cause subjective harm. I mean, I'm pretty close to a First Amendment absolutist here, and I'm very wary of laws that would restrict our ability to say things. But at the same time, we of all people should be leading the way to make our speech not subjectively harmful. So if I say something to you, and maybe I don't mean anything by it, but you you then tell me, you know what, when you say that word, when you call me that name or that label, that causes harm to me, then in almost every case, I should be able to say, well, I won't do that then because I'm, I want to convey neighbor love to you, regardless of what the law says, regardless of what I feel about the word. And instead, I often see people saying, no, no, it's my, I have to say, you know, as a matter of truthful description of the world, I have to use this word, even if it offends you, or I have to say this label because it's my right to do so. And that, that just strikes me as antithetical to our, our fundamental call to neighbor love. Thanks for getting into that. When you were just talking at the end right now, you were saying that essentially loving one's neighbor is obviously being more intentional with the type of speech that we are communicating to them. Do you also see a correlation with that and our own kind of willingness to allow people to say offensive things and not responding in a way that gets, that turns up the temperature, I guess? Oh, for sure. I mean, so... Well, right. The Beatitudes are, you know, if wicked people insult you in my name, you know, blessed, right? I mean, and so, yeah, we should be able to absorb critiques, even unfair ones. I mean, I, th- I think when there are unfair or outlandish critiques, it's important to push back and it's important to explain, but it, it rarely helps to do that as its own hot take. I mean, the number of times I read some deeply offensive hot take or opinion piece about what Christian faith is. And I just want to, you know, rattle off a quick response. I mean, I would be, it would not be good for my writing if I were to do that. And and so to take the time, I mean, you know, for people engaging on social media, which I guess is all of us, why do we feel compelled to respond in the moment? Can we take half a day before we write the snarky or the critical response back to our relative or our college classmate or whoever it is. You know, half the time or more than half the time after I see something that's really frustrates me in the moment, you know, within like half a day, I realize, I don't know, life goes on. I just don't need to respond to that. Yeah. So I think more patience and more ability not to just respond would be helpful for all of us. Well, thank you so much for the extremely thoughtful discussion. I, I think there's a lot for us to mull over here. You know, I could easily imagine doing three parts of this type of conversation for all the technical complexities that exist, but also the philosophical questions that it raises. So thank you so much for shedding your wisdom with us. For people who have feedback for us, who have questions, maybe have their own kind of things they're trying to work out with regards to understanding free speech in the First Amendment, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone has a chance to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, you're up. I've had... Uh the flu in my family for the last week and a half, almost, almost two weeks. <laughs> so the joy has been on the, on the slow, COVID, but the joys have been fleeting and small. My daughter who had the flu, uh, who was the first with the flu, 
she kind of came out of it first. She's like, I've been in my room for eight days and I'm so tired of screens. I want to do something. And so she has been on a, since she's gotten healthier, she has been on a cooking kick. So she's, she's 11. Uh, and so she has these cookbooks that are uh, really excellent. Uh, one is the America's Test Kitchen Cookbook for Kids. It's a really good cookbook. So she's been like working her way through it, making. Uh, so what'd you make? What'd you, what'd you eat? I guess. She, she made a, a few breads. She made a cheese bread. She made some, a really nice pasta dish. She's been making, what else has she been making? She made some soups. So she's, she's been on a cooking tear and it's, it's, it's wonderful to have your, your daughter uh, cooking for you. <laughs> yes. And she must feel so proud of the stuff that she's making too. Oh, she is. Yeah, absolutely. I think America's test kitchen approach of, of trying a bunch of different things is kind of also catching her eye because she has been making grilled cheeses every day and trying slightly different approaches, finding her kind of favorite grilled cheese. That stuff that only she enjoys. I don't get, I don't get to, you know, I have, I have a heart condition, so I don't, I don't get to enjoy a lot of grilled cheese, but it's been awesome seeing her creative energies poured into that and uh, to see. Just help her take really good food photography. Help her proud. She's got this idea that she wants to be a food critic when she grows up. And so she, uh, she's like, I gotta be a good, I gotta, I gotta be a good food if I'm going to criticize other people's food. So she's got her mindset on things. So we actually have started a non-public podcast the two of us, just for family. We, we call it Eat the Earth, where she does this thing where we look at, we, we try some food, and we talk about how it tastes, and then we talk about how healthy is it for us, and then how, how good is it for, for the earth. And she's just poured herself into that as well. So it, it's, well, it's Aww. fun. of energy being poured into this, uh, this food kick that she's on. So it's bringing me a lot of joy to see her, her doing that. So that's me. Morgan, how about you? I have been going swimming when I have the chance to go here in Honolulu. I've been going to Ala Moana Beach, which I'm sure some of you on this podcast are familiar with. And when I think of Ala Moana Beach, I think of a beach that a lot of like locals go to. It's like pretty congregated, pretty full. Lots of people on stand-up paddleboards are playing in there. And yesterday I was swimming in there and I saw a sea turtle. That was very surprising. Awesome. Yeah, I did not expect that at all. I was like, what is that doing there? Anyway, that was really cool to see the sea turtle. I am curious about other type of wildlife is out and about. The birds are really beautiful here and so different, and I'm really enjoying them as well. But yeah, kudos to the sea turtle who I saw when I was swimming. And I'm really grateful just to be able to swim in open water, which is definitely the best way or the way that I like swimming the most over pools. So. I'm grateful for that and having the beach so close. It's like a 10-minute bike ride away. People can follow me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. John, what is yours? Well, you know, first, Morgan, as you were talking about Ala Moana, I lived on Oahu as a kid. And I remember, as you were talking, the big outing for us was to go to the Ala Moana Mall. And now, as I'm thinking about that, why would going to the mall in Hawaii be the big outing? That must have been uh, a little backwards in my childhood. Well, I was going to say because it was air conditioning, but then I was like, Alamon is an open air mall. So <laughs> I don't know. Is this fun to shop? My dad also has the same approach. You know, he, we would go to the mall all the time when I went to Hawaii growing up. So <laughs> yeah, I was on the other side of the Island and you know, that was, that was the big, I, I also grew up on, I grew up on Oahu and going to Alamoana. That was a big, that was the big deal. Well, look at this common connection we're discovering here. This is amazing. My recent moment, much like Ted's uh, involves kids and food. So um, I've got three kids 
13, 11, and 7, and we've, in this pandemic, taken to having spontaneous what we call college nights, which is basically either preparing or ordering bad food late at night. And so we have had lots of very late night pizzas or other such foods. And we had my daughter, Lauren, and I had college night last night with some French fries in the air fryer at 11 o'clock. And that's been a fun twist to pandemic life these days. That's fun. <laughs> I mean, what do you, what type of pizza do you get? We we have to kind of compromise. I actually like the Hawaiian pizza, but no one else in my family does. So we have a complicated dance on on the pizza debate. <laughs> Sorry to hear that you're out. <laughs> All right. So where can people find you outside of this podcast? Oh, sure. I, I A lot of my writing is on my website, johnanazu.com or on Twitter at johnanazu. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. The podcast transcriptions are done by Yvonne Sue and Bunny Ashola. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you are looking for a copy of our conversation, aka the summary of our transcript stuff, you can find that on our website. If you would like to send us an email, podcast at christianitytoday.com. We love reading them on the show, so thank you to everyone who sends those. We will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.